If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Elizabeth Stuart was known as the Queen of Hearts. She was admired by Protestants and Catholics, English and Scottish alike. Unlike her father, James VI and I, and her maligned brother, Charles I. Nadine Ackerman is the author of a new book on this overlooked Stuart princess. And Rhiannon Davis spoke to her about how close Elizabeth actually came to becoming the nation's queen. So for any listeners who aren't familiar with her, who was Elizabeth Stuart? Elizabeth Stuart was the daughter of King James VI and I and Anna of Denmark, or the sister of King Charles I or the aunt of Charles II, depending on what you're most familiar with. So she is a Stuart princess and she was quite important to history uh, because she was involved in the Thirty Years' War. And she lived most of her life, actually, in The Hague, in the Dutch Republic. But a lot of English uh, and Scottish uh, soldiers fought for her cause. Um, So she she is important to English history as well. And you've found a really incredible painting of her that I really wanted to hear more about. So this is a painting that shows Elizabeth wearing a crown, and more specifically, the Tudor crown. Can you tell us a bit more about this painting and why it's so significant? Yeah, it's an incredible painting, and I just stumbled upon it years ago, but I didn't sort of realise the significance of it at the time. I was working on an exhibition, and a curator, Jan Peters of the Markisenhof, um, where the exhibition was held, pointed out the painting, and she said, oh, look, she's wearing what looks like the English crown, the Tudor crown. And I thought, well, it's just a a lovely painting, but didn't give it a second thought. And then I started working on a life years later. And then I realised, actually, what I had been looking at was a treasonous painting. Um, So it, it was quite a dangerous image for any person to have because she is, of course, portrayed as the, a queen of England, which means at a time when her, when her brother was alive. So that means that someone wished her brother was dead and that she would sort of be on the throne. And when I sort of was researching her life, I realised that people had actually wished that she was queen 
rather than her brothers or even her father. This is a recurring theme throughout her life. So it gained significance for me. And uh, it's just a wonderful painting. And it's now the cover of the book. And thinking about treason, what counted as treason in 17th century England? I'm guessing having a painting of someone that wasn't queen being queen was very high up there in the list. Oh, absolutely. It it all sort of started with Edward III in 1351 when he expanded the definition of treason and he included the mere imagining of the king's or his family's death uh, as well as kind of causing physical harm. But so if you only imagined him being dead, that means that you were sort of considering treason and could be accused thereof. And Henry VIII in the the 1530s uh, also included writing or speaking of harming the king as that being an act of treason. Now, we, we see this happening, for instance, with the trial of Mary, Queen of Scots, that we have Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, on trial. And it, Exhibit 1 is an embroidered cushion. So just an image, and, and that is just an image of a tree uh, with a sickle cutting a branch. And they said, this is a Mary, Queen of Scots, and, uh, and a lover imagining the death of Elizabeth I. So taking that a step further in the 17th century, if you then owned a painting where someone is actually wearing the crown, well, while the king is still alive, that comes a lot closer to treason than that embroidered cushion, I would say. Of course. And if you were found to own that painting or be painting that painting... Would you be put in prison? Would you die? What would happen? They would need to gather a bit more evidence. So they would have uh, sort of overheard conversations, a bit of political manoeuvring. Uh, but but I don't think uh, you could get away with it. So you would sort of hide this painting. And uh, just to be clear, it's not uh, Elizabeth Stewart who commissioned it. She probably never knew of, of, of the existence hereof, because it's also a very weird painting in that it is a, a composite painting that we, we know of, of this image without the crown. So where she is just having um, a, a very weird hairpin and, and it just it's a lovely painting without a crown, but you can actually see that someone later added it. So someone has sort of um, messed with the painting to make it into this treasonous image, imagining her to be queen. And do we have any idea of who might have commissioned the painting or is it just one of those mysteries? I think it's one of those mysteries. Well, for now, of course, uh, the great thing about research is there's always more to to be found out. So I hope, perhaps even by sort of publishing this this image as a cover image for the book, or even because of this podcast, someone will sort of be be triggered to to go and do a bit of more research. That would be really fantastic, wouldn't it? Yeah, but I I haven't been able to find it out myself. But of course, I'm not giving up. (laughs) Well, I hope you find out who painted it. Um, And something else I wanted to know, why do you think no one else realised the significance of the painting before this? Uh, Because it was just on display in archives, wasn't it? But it wasn't seen as this treasonous painting before now. Well, when you say on display in archives, it's it's in a private collection. So... uh, Unless you're at the private collector's house, you would not sort of have seen this image. 
And it has been in an exhibition catalogue in 1998. The Scottish National Gallery had a wonderful exhibition organised by Rosalind Marshall. But in the exhibition catalogue, it's displayed as a very tiny image in comparison to the other paintings, just because of layout. Just And I just think, because she's often uh, displayed wearing the crown of Bohemia, because she was sometime queen of Bohemia. So I think just by not looking closely enough at this crown, it has just been overlooked, as I did in the, in the very beginning. I didn't sort of think about it um, enough. Uh, but if you sort of zoom in, you can sort of see the fleur de lis and you can see that it is the Tudor crown, the same crown uh, Elizabeth I is, for instance, wearing on, on coins. Uh, you can see her in a very similar pose as well. And let's find out now a bit more about Elizabeth herself. So you describe her as one of the 17th century's most underrated figures. Why is that? Yes, for instance, people know her as the Winter Queen. And the Winter Queen has a very romantic ring to it. Um, it's, it's, it sounds nice, but what people don't realise, for instance, it is a mock name uh, given to her by her enemies. Um, it, it only sort of circulated in a pamphlet. Um, historians thought, what a great name, let's call her the Winter Queen. And that doesn't have, hasn't done her any favours. So calling her the Winter Queen hasn't done her any favours. That's also the reason why I call her the Queen of Hearts, because that is how she was known by her contemporaries, not just in a single pamphlet, but everyone called her the Queen of Hearts. Because she was a, a charismatic lady, she had so many supporters, strangely enough, also uh, Catholic Scots. So she is a Protestant martyr, but even the, the, the Catholic Scots uh, were happy to fight for her cause because she was also a Stuart princess. So they recognised those dynastic links, uh, which was very important to them. And what we um, sort of knew about her turns out to be not to be the case. So I, I started my career studying English literature. And that's how I stumbled upon Elizabeth Stewart, because she was thought to be only interested in plays and theatre. And because Shakespeare uh, had a, even a play for her wedding, I thought, how wonderful. If she is interested in, in theatre, then she will surely write something about all these plays and perhaps even about Shakespeare. And when I started, started collecting her letters, I found that she never mentioned any play whatsoever. She just wrote about military battles, diplomatic treatises and politics. So suddenly I'm being confronted with this 70th century woman who has a very strong voice. She is witty, she is fierce and she's politically engaged. Um, of course, I was I was actually disappointed at first because I was looking for those plays. So even that took me a while uh, that I was looking at something that was much more interesting. So the whole thing that she was interested in theatre and plays started with her granddaughter trying to defend her. So her granddaughter wrote a letter saying, my 
grandmother can't be accused of starting the Thirty Years' War because she was mostly interested in plays and theatre. Now, th- this granddaughter had only met her, her grandmother uh, once or twice, and she was then only seven, and probably couldn't even understand the language of diplomacy in the Dutch Republic, which was French at the time. So she she tried to defend her grandmother, but just historians have taken that line a bit too seriously that she was only interested in plays and theatre. Another kind of um, stock phrase is that she cared more for her, her dogs and monkeys than for her 13 children. Now, this was uh, said by a daughter at a moment uh, that she fell out with her mother. Uh, but they, they later sort of... Um, restored their relationship and I can sort of think that we were always sort of saying things about our parents that we don't fully mean uh, just in the heat of the moment and she was also trying to make a joke at the time so even though she had a lot of monkeys and dogs because she had a, a menagerie which was quite normal for royalty at the time She cared a lot about her children, and there are a lot uh, of loving references in her letters, uh, which were just left unread for centuries. So we had an edition of a couple of hundreds of letters. I found thousands more uh, in archives and collections and private libraries all over Europe and the United States. Um, So I spent uh, almost 15 years collecting our letters and trying to rehabilitate her, um, pointing out all her faults as well, but sort of saying, here we have a woman who was quite important to the 17th century and she lived for a very long time and she lived through not only the Thirty Years' War but even the Eight Years' War because she was in the Dutch Republic. She was quite important for the English Civil Wars as well because there were a lot of refugees entering her court in in the Dutch Republic and yet we don't know enough about her. No, she sounds like a really incredible figure. I'm very glad that she's getting the attention she deserves. Um, So before we come on to her involvement with war, when is she first seriously considered a contender for the Stuart throne? It's quite early on, in 1612, when she was still in England, around the time of her wedding. uh, Everyone was getting ready for this huge celebration, uh, which was celebrated. It's it's not just a wedding. Compared to the opening of the Olympic Games, that's how uh, such a massive feast it was in, in, in London at the time. But while they were trying to sort of prepare this wedding, her brother... The, the heir to the throne, uh, Henry, suddenly died of typhoid. And even though she had another brother, that Charles, who later becomes Charles I, at the time, Charles was rather fragile and rather sickly. And Henry had always been quite a sturdy fellow. So the people thought if Henry could die, if Henry can sort of um, um, suddenly die, then Charles wouldn't probably survive. That's the kind of reasoning behind it. So they looked to her, um, this gorgeous, uh, almost 16-year-old girl, who at the time was going to to marry uh, the Calvinist Frederick V, Elector Palatine, and he was one of the most powerful princes of the Holy Roman Empire um, of Germany. So they, they looked at her as, as a kind of Protestant 
alternative. They were very much convinced of her religion, whereas, of course, they still had to wait how Charles would develop. But they were certain that she was a Protestant married to this Calvinist prince, and she's she's the hope for the Protestant faithful at the time. They're convinced she will come back to to the British Isles at some point because Charles is going to die. And what happens when she does marry Frederick? Because she moves away from the Stuart kingdoms, doesn't she? Yes, she does. She, as a dutiful uh, wife, she's going to join her husband in Heidelberg in Germany. And they have a relatively peaceful couple of years, although there's a lot of kind of arguments with her mother-in-law, which you can sort of uh, imagine. Um, Also, this was just an arranged marriage. So she struggled a bit, uh, which was quite normal at the time, of course, again, for royalty. But she has always been portrayed as immediately loving her husband. That was not the case. Uh, so, So it took her a couple of years. Um, um, it took them a couple of years to get used to each other. But then something happens. Uh, her husband is being offered the crown of Bohemia, and Bohemia is, is Prague, and um, he accepts, and they depose, uh, basically, the, the Bohemian rebels depose the, uh, Ferdinand, the, the emperor who then also wanted to be king of Bohemia. And they move to Prague, and she is there all alone because uh, her husband is elsewhere in Bohemia trying to sort of uh, make sure that everyone supports him. So she is alone in the capital uh, for most of their reign, uh, which lasts exactly a year. Um, so that's also the reason why she later becomes mocked as the Winter Queen. Uh, not she, because she ruled for one winter, but from one winter to the next winter. And uh, so for just one year, and they have to flee um, Prague because um, of of Catholic armies uh, trying to take over again successfully. And they end up in in The Hague in the Dutch Republic because her husband is related to the Princess of Orange. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So Elizabeth I is actually the godmother of Elizabeth Stewart. And people immediately start comparing her to the old queen. And this continues throughout her life. And she just runs with it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash history extra just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed And while all this is happening, she isn't forgotten about in the Stuart kingdoms. And you said that they were keen to see how Charles would develop. And one thing I wanted to know is with the Spanish match. So this is when Charles I is um, hopefully going to marry the Catholic Spanish Infanta. How does this make matters worse for Charles and make Elizabeth seem like a better prospect? Well, at this point, she really is a Protestant martyr. 
right? So she she Catholic armies have have driven her away, and she's living in exile in the Dutch Republic. There's still a lot of kind of British soldiers fighting in the Palatinate, trying to get those German lands back that the Emperor and Bavaria and Spain have also taken as a kind of repercussion of uh, her husband taking the crown of Bohemia. So a lot of um, warlike action is is taking place. A, a lot of British soldiers are involved fighting for her. And she is a Protestant. Meanwhile, James, her father, who is trying to keep the peace in Europe as well, is thinking, I want to marry my uh, son to the Spanish to restore the balance. And he wants to resolve uh, the conflict kind of peacefully, thinking uh, if I can have a marriage deal with the Spanish, the Spanish will also give my daughter's lands back um, as part of that deal. But the people are very afraid that Charles is going to marry a Catholic and not just a Catholic, a Spanish Catholic. So it, it's it's a highly unpopular match. And there is talk when Charles goes on this trip to Madrid with the Duke of Buckingham um, to, to collect his bride. There's talk, why not get Elizabeth to England while Charles is away? And perhaps James can flee the country and, and just become King of Scotland again. And we have Elizabeth then on the, tr- on the throne. Protestantism is, is secured. She has a lot of children as well. So th- we don't have to sort of um, be worried about the, the succession either. Uh, it will be all sorted. And th- I'm, I suppose those are reasons for why she was so popular, that she was Protestant. She had lots of children. But is there anything else? Was her character seen to be better suited to being a monarch than Charles, perhaps? Well, she she's not afraid of taking decisive action. <laughs> and um, strangely enough, perhaps for a woman, she is very belligerent. She is very into fighting the Spanish and starting war. And she is, is not someone who is ready to make compromises. She wants all or nothing. She keeps that repeating that. They offer half of her lands back and she just declines quite early on. In 1636, I've, I've sometimes wondered if she had said yes, perhaps she could have sort of ended the Thirty Years' War a bit earlier. But that is, of course, a provocative statement because there were other players involved in the Thirty Years' War. But she was certainly one of the reasons it lasted a bit longer than it could have done. <laughs> And another thing that I found so fascinating is that she really plays up the idea that she's the natural reincarnation of Elizabeth I. How does she do that? It it starts with her name, of course. It is at at the time she's born in 1596, uh, when her father is still King of Scotland only, and he wants to impress Elizabeth I, saying, I want to name my child after you. Would you agree and become godmother? And she says yes. So Elizabeth I is actually the godmother of Elizabeth Stuart. And people immediately start comparing her to the old queen. And this continues throughout her life, and she just runs with it. 
She starts copying Elizabeth I's signature. So when people receive a letter of Elizabeth Stewart, and she must have, have written 10 letters a day, so many letters survive, but also refer to other letters that are lost, they, it, they must have been sort of reminded of this golden age of Elizabeth I because they look at the signature, which looks exactly the same. And uh, she is wearing all the jewellery that Elizabeth I uh, also wore uh, that she sort of inherited via King James and and out of Denmark. Uh, And she sort of poses like Elizabeth I. So she she realises that people compare her to the old queen, also in in poetry and plays that were performed at the time. Um, So she plays up to that kind of image. And if Elizabeth had moved to take the Stuart throne, do you think that she would have been a popular ruler? Would her rule have been a success? I would like to think so. I think she would have done a better job than Charles I. Uh, Perhaps that's not saying much, of course, but... It's it's uh, she was so charismatic that I think she could really have joined uh, the people and they really saw her as uh, queen of hearts. And if we can sort of speculate a, a bit, because that is always nice to sort of wonder what if, for instance, I, I think if she if she had become uh, queen of England in 1624 she would have immediately gotten rid of William Lord, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and she would have fought the Spanish. Because, But I think because so many soldiers were willing to fight for her, and she would have spent a lot of money on that first fight, but I think it would have been a, a, a kind of decisive battle. Or she would have said uh, to the Spanish, why... For instance, her son Rupert, who later becomes a a, a Civil War commander. Why don't you take my son Rupert? I'm going to marry him to a Spanish princess, but she needs to convert. And he will take over all your your ships and he will become this kind of great uh, naval commander. Certainly, when, when the Civil War started, both Parliament as well as the royalists, recognised that she could she could unite the people. They both invited her to come to England to mediate between the two parties. So we have both sides of the conflict sort of recognising that she could potentially have acted as a mediator. And one more speculative question. Sorry, I do love them. If she had been queen, do you think civil war could have been avoided in England? I think so. I I don't think she she would have forced the the, the book of Common Prayer, uh, for instance. Um, so even sort of upon the people. So I think she would sort of even have avoided the whole bishops' wars. So I don't think civil war would have started but but it's of course extremely speculative i can also see that she was not someone so she could mediate between people but she had a very kind of clear policy of what she herself wanted so it it depended i think it would have depended a bit on what what her her thoughts were at the time and whether for instance uh, she would have gone to war against the spanish that's fair enough and she ultimately decides to not try and take the Stuart throne. Why Why is that? Why does she not move for the throne? 
Well, I think she also just has um, a lot of loyalty towards her her father and towards uh, her brother even, even though she's not always agrees with with, um, how they... um, run things she she is very loyal she is still a steward and she deliberately um um she doesn't move to england at the time people sort of think that she's not allowed back in but when she moves into exile it's her own choice not to move back to england because she wants to um, rule without her father or her brother controlling her. So she deliberately moves away from them. So she is, she is happy in The Hague as far as that she can act autonomously. Um, it, she lives near the center of government and she, all the ambassadors that come to talk to the Dutch uh, talk to her first. So she, she influences a lot of diplomats there and she can become her own political agent. So I don't think she has a kind of, there's no interest for her to move to England. She would never have taken the throne away from her male family members. And you mentioned earlier that she's very involved in politics and you talked about her letters. And one thing I wanted to ask you is that she wrote a lot of ciphered letters. So these are coded letters. And I know that you managed to break some of these ciphers. Can you tell us about that? How do you break these codes? Oh, it's it's wonderful when you come across a cipher because it immediately the secrets immediately stare stare you in the face because they're numbers. So you immediately see that someone is trying to hide something, and and you try to um, puzzle. Really, you try to collect a lot of letters uh, with the same cipher. And you then, or this is how I do it, there are other ways of breaking ciphers, but how I've done it is that you try to sort of search for the point at which they make a mistake. You know enough about the context, and then suddenly they make the mistake of only putting the subject of the the, the sentence into cipher code. And you can guess that the first word is Duke because she has written uh, Buckingham uh, in plain text. So suddenly you have four letters and you can sort of fill in those four letters and start guessing other words. Um, There's also, you can do it with frequency. um, So you know that that fouls um, um, had more equivalents in a cipher key, but you can sort of count the frequency of letters and start doing it like that. Uh, The thing to remember about cipher keys in this century is that they were very rudimentary. So it's sometimes, even um, when I was working on my other book, Playwright Afra Bain, who was also a spy, had a cipher key with the A is one, the B is two, the C is three. Oh, what would the D be? So it's <laughs> it's it can be that kind of rudimentary. So they have the sub- substitution alphabet, and then usually a list of names as well. So 160 is, for instance, the King of Spain. And what's the most significant piece of information you found by breaking a cipher? Well. So some of it is just gossipy at best. I, I, I must honestly say that the thing about breaking cipher keys, you then end up sometimes not with secrets, but just with a bit of gossip. But uh, I could see that she was trying to hide things that went against her brother's policy. So to put it simple, she favoured war 
he wanted to look for a, a diplomatic solution. So she is writing about, let's use the landgrave of Hesse's army. I'm sure my son is old enough. He can take that army now. And uh, Charles I is saying, uh, let's send another diplomatic embassy to the emperor to resolve the conflict peacefully. And because she knew that most of her letters went through uh, the diplomatic mail of the um the steward ambassador in The Hague, she knew I need to keep this hidden from my brother, the king, because he wants something different. And we've mentioned war quite a lot in this conversation. It's been quite a big theme. Can you tell us more about her involvement in the Thirty Years' War in particular? Yes, well, it, it basically started when uh, when her husband um, embraced the Bohemian Rebellion and it became a a warlike conflict, not not local in Bohemia, but but with all the Europeans uh, powers involved, uh, starting the Thirty Years' War, and it it sort of she um, she she was part of that. So she she fought to get her uh, ancestral lands back for her children. Um, she becomes a widow at quite an early age in sixteen thirty two. And she never gives up. So she is at the heart of, of the, the 30th War. And she later also becomes, is a very big part of the English Civil War uh, because she has a court which then starts to function as an alternative royal court on the continent to which a lot of these royalists could just uh, find, uh, come and find refuge. And it seems that one of her prime motivations is securing a legacy for her children, whether that's through marriages or giving them um, military titles. Can you tell us a bit more about this? Would you agree that that is one of her big driving factors? Oh, absolutely. Everything she does is for her children. So she tries to make sure that the uh, eldest son, um, the first one, drowns um, when he's about 16. But So the second one, um, um, she tries to get the platinate back. And the platinate, the German lands, also come uh, come with power as the elected palatine, for instance, could veto decisions of the emperor. So the elected palatine was quite a, a mighty prince. Um, which is also another thing that pe- a lot of people don't realize. Because, but he was a powerful prince, and she wants that power back for her son. Um, so not only the lands, but but the power that comes with it. Um, and she try. She's quite the matchmaker. She doesn't really succeed, but she she certainly tries. So for from 1631 until 1637, she is negotiating with the king of Poland uh, for a marriage for her daughter, who is also called Elizabeth. And um, it it sort of. Uh, it, it, it stops at, at a point when he not only says, I want her to convert to become a Catholic, which, of course, she she wouldn't approve. But why it really um, sort of ends is that the king of, of Poland also wants mistresses and he wants that in the marriage contract. And he, she is just saying that's a step too far. So I'll find another husband for my daughter. And um, she is... 
trying to negotiate another match for a son with, with the, the Queen of Sweden, uh, Christina. Um, there are so many matches that almost happen, which is another what-if what moment, of course, continually for, for all our children. And um, nine of, out of 13 live uh, to adulthood, which is also uh, amazing to realize. And it's it's such an extraordinary family. You have, uh, for instance, a daughter, Louise Hollandine, um, who becomes a noted artist, and um, which is also quite rare at the time. Um, it's it's a daughter who uh, betrays her mother because she is the one who really converts to Catholicism and doesn't even gain the meanest of husbands. So she she has decided uh, one of my daughters is not becoming queen of Poland because uh, then she would have to convert. So we, we, we decide not to make a queen and then she has another daughter who just converts to Catholicism without marrying at all and who becomes a, a nun. She Of course, she never forgave her. And then you have Rupert and Morris, who fight in, in, in the Civil War as royalist commanders. Uh, you have Charles Lewis, who, who more supports Parliament. And of course, a, a grandson becomes King of Great Britain in 1714. So you have the, the line uh, all the way to uh, Elizabeth today, Elizabeth II, uh, deriving from her family. That was Nadine Ackerman. Her book, Elizabeth Stewart, Queen of Hearts, is published by Oxford University Press and available now. She also wrote a feature on Elizabeth Stewart for the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, which is also on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.